Happy Pet Clinic? Your father gave us this number when he left town. The Calico Stray had six kittens. Please come get them today. Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we explore the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. I'm Nathan Paletta. And I'm Epidiah Ravishaw. Our episode coming your way today is quite the quite the frenzy. What are we talking about today, Epi? Uh, we are talking about Season 3, Episode 4. The title is Feeding Frenzy, which I, I'm going to freely admit that not until this very moment do I understand what the title is about. Well, maybe we'll talk about that when it, when it becomes more obvious in the show, but uh, I just had that moment, you know, when you, you suddenly realize that the Beatles, it's a pun. <laughs> Well, so uh, we're doing this episode at the suggestion of one of our gumshoes over on Patreon. Uh, so thanks mm. to Victor DeSanto for calling this out as one that we might want to take a look at. That's a good call. Yeah. He mentions that uh, it kind of has a different sensibility to it than a lot of Rockford episodes, especially in the first couple seasons. It's my editorial, I think. It kind of stands out mm -hmm. amongst other season two, season three episodes. And we'll go into into that as we talk about it. But yeah, he brought it to our attention and I'm glad he did. So thank you, Victor. And uh, if you want to have the inside line to telling us what to do, check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash 200 a day. And I would urge you to do it sooner rather than later. Uh, we've done the math. We only have four and a half years left of this <laughs> podcast. You, you want to get in before that's over. Exactly. Well, speaking of numbers, this is a good number and oh, yeah. money episode. So I hope you have your calculator at your fingertips there, Epi. I do. I do. Always. Feeding Frenzy. This one is another uh, another episode directed by Russ Mayberry. We're getting through most of his filmography here on the Rockford Files. This is the fifth of his episodes that we're talking about, wow. including a couple that I think we both really like. The Oracle Wears a Cashmere Suit and Hotel of Fear. So you can go back in our archives to find those. But yeah, maybe he'll be the first uh, Rockford Files director that will do the full the full body of work. We only have two more to go. Right, yeah. There's a lot of like good not showy camera work in this. Um and then also some fun like very dramatic framing. Yeah. Uh which I, I like I think is kind of a, a bit of a signature of his at this point. Um and it was written by uh, a duo, uh Lester Burke and Donald Gold, who wrote a couple other episodes, including the final episode of the Rockford Files that ever aired, was written by them. And I'd say unlike the other duo of writers that we've talked about before in our just by accident episode uh they seem to have their finger on the pulse of of good rockford adventure yeah and i don't know if you looked into their credits at all but lester burke was the uh unit production manager on the show apparently i think for the whole run of it so he he, he knew what he was talking about uh he was also an assistant director on the tv movies in the 90s oh he's got a lot of airwolf credits too yeah both of these guys have tons of production credits uh between production management some directing, uh, some producing. Donald Gold was an assistant director on Miami Vice for a little while and produced the Diagnosis Murder show. Lots of credits, lots of work. Yeah. But this does have a bit of a atypical nature to it from uh, other Rockford scripts, I'd say. So it's a nice change of pace. But yeah, so with that, I don't know, demographic info in mind, let's get into our preview montage. All right. Well, so we see the preview montage and it... Let's us know that we're in for a kidnapping. Then there'll be threats. 
And then there'll be cop threats. And I like that. I like when there's both types of threats. Uh, and then finally it ends with uh, a lovely scene between uh, James Garner and uh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this guy's name right. George Weiner? W-Y-N. I'm going to go with Weiner uh, that we'll talk about when we get to. But uh, letting us know that there's humor involved in all of this kidnapping and threat. We also get uh, get a nod towards the fact that this episode will center on some question of $500,000. Half a mil. Mm. 200 a day is supported by all of our listeners, but especially our gumshoes. For this episode, we say thank you to John Adamus, the writer next door. Find his go-to resources for storytellers and creatives who want to tell better stories at writernextdoor.com. Mike Gillis, a host of the Radio vs. the Martians podcast, The McLaughlin Group for Nerds, radiovsthemartians.com. Kevin Lovecraft, part of the Wednesday Evening Podcast All-Stars Actual Play podcast, found at misdirectedmark.com. Lowell Francis, with his award-winning gaming blog at ageofravens.blogspot.com. Shane Liebling, Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Bill Anderson, Adam Alexander, and Chris. And finally, big thank yous to Victor DeSanto and to Richard Haddam, who you can find on Twitter at Richard Haddam. We've recently updated our Patreon with new opportunities for sponsorship, so check out patreon.com slash 200 today and see if you want to be our newest gumshoe. All right, so we get started with some lovely piano music over a beautiful night scene as Rockford and a woman who we quickly learn is uh, an old girlfriend of his named Sandy uh, are having dinner at a beachside restaurant of some kind. Uh, Sandy is played by Susan Howard, who was on Dallas for a while around this time. One of our featured roles of someone who who the audience probably would have recognized. Right. Yeah. Though she doesn't really have a whole lot to do in this episode, unfortunately, other than be kidnapped. <laughs> a couple times. Spoiler. I do like their their back and forth here. This is uh sort of in that genre of bittersweet past romance, mm-hmm. right? Like they like they as they go back and forth, their relationship obviously was a contentious one. They burned like a house on fire as it as it were, and they're having this sort of back and forth about it until Rockford is like, okay, yeah, but why? Why am I here? What do you want from me? <laughs> he knows that she's just, she's not going to call him up just for old time's sake. Um, and it turns out that uh, her father, who is a friend of Rockford's, who sells bait on the pier, as we come to learn, but her father's in some kind of trouble and needs, needs yeah. Jim's help. And so she made the overture to get him involved. She says that she wants to go somewhere more private to talk about it. And they leave, which... Makes me assume that they've already eaten. Uh, we do not get to see them eat on camera, so we don't get to see what Rockford ate at this fancy restaurant. But he tries to pay the bill. They're charged for something. Uh, and there's a back and forth about who gets to pay the bill there. She doesn't want to put up with his macho routine. <laughs> trying to pay for the bill, even though she invited him out for it. Um, as they leave the restaurant, in the first of these kind of subtle but very effective camera work moments that I mentioned earlier, the camera pans to follow them as they leave and then focuses on a pair of guys in another booth who are clearly watching them, keeping tabs on them. I noted them down as the relaxed mustache guy and the nervous denim guy. <laughs> the relaxed mustache guy, he's the one in the pink shirt, right? Like the really... Really pink shirt. Uh, the guy who looks yeah. like he, he might have a, a side gig as a village person, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> that mustache. There's plenty of menace in what's going on with these two, though. Like, the relaxed mustache guy is... The, they're negotiating yeah. to get, get him hired to do something clearly dangerous and illegal mm. uh, involving Sandy, right? Yeah. Because they're, they're focusing on her. Yeah, and he, the, the mustache guy, holds out for... 500 bucks. He was first offered two yards. Two yards. And so the denim guy's clearly desperate. He's nervous and something is going on. Yeah, that's the other bit that really adds to the menace of this situation is that this guy, you wouldn't trust this guy with anything with how he's behaving. Whatever is putting pressure on him has got his nerves shot. We get the intro credits over a nice uh, pan of the the beach area near where Rockford lives. Um, And we kind of end that at the pier. It's the next day. Sandy is talking to her dad, Charlie. Charlie is played by Eddie Firestone, who has been in two episodes that we've talked about before. But I think in such minor roles that I do not remember who he was in them. (laughs) He was in Charlie Harris at large and two into five fifty six won't go. I think he's the guy that he goes up to. Rockford goes up to the house and. Oh, um, you're right. He talked the. He's like the Undertaker guy. Yeah. With the kids who stole his limo. Yeah, just full of personality. Yeah. To be, we definitely talked about him in that episode because that was a, a great side character bit. Yeah, he's just got a face for yeah, it. Yeah, he plays a character named Haynes in Charlie Harris at large, and I do not remember who. Yeah, I don't remember that one. Anyway, he is basically the non-Rockford protagonist in this one, so it's nice to see him yeah. kind of sink his teeth into into a bit of a role. I feel like, and we'll, we'll probably get into this as we go on, um, his arc and his part in this episode is at odds with everything else that's in this episode. Yeah. He's having like a really dramatic arc and he's having a really tragic mm-hmm. sort of, you know, not to give away too much, but why are you listening to us if you, <laughs> if you don't want to give it away? Um, the tone around him is going to be separate from the tone around everyone else. We'll, we'll get into it, but I think it's, it's interesting watching what's going on with him. Well, we'll talk about this more in depth later, but I feel like his character here is also pretty different from most Rockford Files characters because it's essentially it's essentially a study in a weak person. Yeah. And we don't have too many of those, um, especially not ones that aren't played for comedy as well. Because even when he's in scenes that have some humor to them, he's not very funny. Like he's not a humorous yeah, he's, part of he's not the humor. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Sandy has told Rockford that Charlie's in trouble. Uh and he goes into how there was a he made a bad mistake three years ago, but now the statute of limitations has run out. And yeah. that's why he's coming to Rockford. He doesn't know if that's the right thing to do. And she says, well, since he was in prison, he knows about these kinds of things. So we know that this between the statute of limitations and the the prison uh, reference, you know, this is clearly some kind of illegal activity has happened. I, I'm just like imagining this from Sandy's point of view, where Charlie, her dad, gets into the kind of trouble where she has to go to her ex-con ex-boyfriend to resolve it. We still don't know the trouble yet as the audience members, but I'm already trying to like suss it out. I mean, I vaguely recall this episode from before. I don't remember the plot itself, but I remember certain elements of it. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but just what kind of trouble this guy's up to or has been up to Mm -hmm. and that that it would put her in that kind of uncomfortable situation. Not that Jim makes the situation uncomfortable at all. Jim is, in fact, the perfect person to go to for this. But on paper, 
just, I would hate to do that. Right. Like I would hate to be like in a situation where one of my parents is like, I need you to talk to an ex. Yeah, for any reason. Yeah, for any reason. It, it creates a big dramatic question right at the beginning of the yeah. episode. Like from the very beginning, we're waiting to find out what this thing is. Rockford uh, arrives um, to talk to Charlie. Sandy pieces out. Yeah, she did. She did what she was there to do. So she leaves. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie's cl- clearly very nervous and he needs to show Rockford something to explain all of this. He kind of he says something about how he hates to drag a friend into this. And Rockford has a great quote. It's very essential to the Rockford character. We're friends. If you need some help, I'd be glad to help. Rockford is a good friend. That's part of who he is. So this is a great statement, and it's verifiably untrue about Rockford. (laughs) Because if Angel came to him with the exact same problem. I feel like there's there's an asterisk on friends with Angel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that's different from being a friend with anyone else. Right. Right. We we get a nice cut to seeing Charlie opening a safety deposit box that is full of cash. (laughs) And this is where we uh, get the line from the preview montage of it's a little over five hundred thousand dollars. Rockford's palms are sweating because that amount of money makes him nervous. (laughs) If they're itching, that means money's coming to him. But if they're sweating, that means he's scared to death. I do love his appreciation for this. And it comes up a couple times in the episode where he's like, this isn't something to just throw around. This isn't just a pressure to hook on your, your characters here. This is this is a terrifying amount of money to have exist in your possession because of the danger it attracts. Which we'll see. Uh, Charlie says that he stole the money three years ago. And he's just been he's been nervous about it ever since. And then we, we transition to the fuller explanation as the two of them you know, put put it back and go walk walk around in a park um, to, to chat about all this stolen money. So uh, Charlie worked for an oil company called Seawell in some kind of senior position. There was a lot of pressure and he was starting to break up. His marriage was dissolving. He was having all kinds of trouble. He was drinking and uh, he knew that there was money left around in the office to pay out like oil leases or something. So he just knew there was cash around and he kind of thought like, oh, maybe I should steal some of it. Apparently... He got drunk one night at work, got so drunk that he passed out in the storeroom and got locked in, woke up, found a safe box, and decided to steal it because he was so drunk. (laughs) He couldn't open it, so he just stole the entire thing. And apparently once he figured out how to get it open and sobered up and realized that it was full of $500,000 of his employer's (laughs) money, he knew if he tried to return it, then he'd be arrested. So he put it in the safety deposit box, quit his job, and started a new life selling bait on the pier. But now the statute of limitations on that kind of robbery is three years. It's going to run out at midnight. It's running or just ran out, something like that. And he wants to give it back because he just doesn't want it. Like he's like, just the thought of it makes him so nervous and so sick. Yeah. He just wants to preserve his life as it is now and just give it back. But he doesn't want to give it back in person because he doesn't want there to be press and he doesn't want to have any kind of like, he, he just wants his life to continue how it is just with this money not in it anymore. Yeah, exactly. And you can really empathize with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never stolen half a million dollars, <laughs> which I mean, again, we got to talk about the exchange rate here. That's, A couple million dollars. Yeah, it's almost Uh, two and a half million. Yeah, something like that. So I've never stolen that much. (laughs) But I can imagine wanting to make good on something bad, but also like to put it behind you, but not to like make it present again. Yeah. Like I have the means to pay the debt. 
Let's just pay it and just walk away from it. We start to see this picture of Charlie as like he he's someone who's who's done some things he's not proud of mm-hmm. and he wants to make them right. But he's not strong enough in himself to just suck it up and do it. Yeah, right? this is kind of the refrain that we're going to get throughout the episode. He's hung up on these things that he doesn't like about himself, but he's not able to push through and make them right without help from someone else. And that's why Jim's there. Uh, Jim says that he'll think about it He because that is, after all, a whole lot of money. Yeah, he has he has a great line about it too, like where he's like, "I like to feel around the edges before I sign." I'm like, maybe when we're done with this, we should just put together a book of Jim Rockford's advice for life because there's like there's a lot of things he says where it's just like, yeah. You should be more like that. That is good general advice. Yes. The camera kind of pans away from them as they walk through this park to see a guy in a suit uh, in a car watching them. He then goes to a payphone and makes a call to someone who, once we see him on the other end of the line, his name's Grady, and he has great sideburns. Yes. (laughs) They have a bit of conversation that implies heavily that Grady just got out of prison maybe or got out of some kind of thing he was stuck in but now this ultimate score has come around and uh, they need to meet in half an hour neither of these guys are the same as the first two guys i have in my notes here so many goons there's a lot of goons yeah we're starting to pile them up so we cut from here to a dark alley where our our guy who was wearing denim earlier We quickly learn that his name is Mickey. Uh, He's stumbling through this alley and he gets jumped by two new guys. Yes. In mob suits. Yeah, yeah. They're dressed in a way that codes them as mafia. And uh, these two goons make short work of him, pin him down, and start giving him the what for because he's overdue on some kind of debt. And he has two days to make it right. And he's and he starts stammering. He has a big score coming in. He has a big thing coming in. He made an investment and it's due to mature. Yes. <laughs> and so these goons are like, well, all right, you can explain this big score to Lucy. And they throw him in the back of a car with the dramatic backlit silhouette of a, a smaller man, clearly the boss, in the back seat. Cut to Rockford handing a $100 bill over to someone. This episode has a good pace to it, where it just like really moves right along. There's a lot that it packs in. The tangled web of plot lines that are going on. Or, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say plot lines, I should say plots. You have Charlie trying to get something done. You got... Rockford trying to help Charlie. That's fine. You've got our nervous guy in denim, uh, who, who's got an angle. And then, uh, you've got the, the goons that we just met just before this scene. Mm-hmm. We don't know what their deal is, but they're following. And then these goons with Lucy, it's just the, the whole mess of it going on right now. There are already three groups of goons. Yeah. <laughs> and we're like barely into the episode. Rockford is in the office of a uh, a lawyer for Sewell um, Steinberg, who is played by a guy that we both were like, oh, that's a guy we've seen in lots of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, George Weiner. Yes. Most notably from Spaceballs. Uh, he's in a he's in a couple other episodes of The Rockford Files as well um, as a million things through the 80s and 90s. And I think he's still he's still acting. He's still working. He's still in yeah. TV shows. Anyway, this is a great comedic scene even as it advances the plot. Rockford plays this angle. It's not really a con. He's not really lying. He's being elusive. Because he doesn't want to give this company anything that's going to bounce back on him 
any more than possible. So he keeps on mentioning like things like uh, uh, repentance and mm-hmm. he's just an angel coming down. Yeah. He's the bright light in Sewell's next quarterly statement. <laughs> and he, he has Steinberg check the serial number on this $100 bill. And of course, he has all the paperwork right at hand, which is very convenient. But he has the money and he wants a safe way to return it without any authorities or press. And so this whole time, the lawyer's like, oh, I should go get the, like, director, and he should really talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Rockford, how about you do this thing I want you to do first? Like, what, are you scared of me? You think I'm a criminal? Good banter. This scene, yeah, this scene is great, because, like, watching Steinberg get more and more affable, the more nervous he gets. Like, he really wants, Mm -hmm. he wants to be Jim's friend. He's trying to keep everything calm by keeping Jim calm, but you could tell that he's not... He's getting more and more nervous the more friendlier he gets with Jim. And Jim is trying to calm him down by getting friendly with him. So it's this uh, echo chamber. Yeah, it's it's good. Jim ends with some more comments about like down at the... Not at the monastery, but like down at the... um, Is it the parish? He clearly indicates the mission. Yeah, the mission. So he, he, he ends his spiel with saying like down at the mission this this and the other and you see the the pieces fall into place for a steinberg he's like you're a priest yes <laughs> so it's it's kind of a broad comedy right it's yeah. very like waka 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 but it works because they're both they, they're both good yeah yeah they're both good and and they have good chemistry i want to talk just a teeny bit about the structure here because it's certainly something that he's seeding for as you were saying like his language is very like like messianic kind yeah, of yeah yeah but is he, like, because he comes in, he's not running a con in the beginning, and then at the end realizes he needs to button it up with a con. Weinberg needs something to be like, oh, that's what that guy's deal is. Yeah. So, like, that's the thing. Like, I wonder about this scene if if Rockford, not James Gardner, but Rockford decided to play it as uh, a priest trying to be coy at, from the very beginning. Or if by the end of this conversation, he's like, I just need, I need a con to get me out of here. I'm just going <laughs> to make this guy think I'm a priest and then we'll be done with it. I think it's fun either way. But like when I first saw it, that was the second way was the way I read it. And I was like, huh. I kind of feel that way also because I feel like at the beginning of the scene, he's being ironic. He's being dry and, and kind of sarcastic. Yeah. Like my read of it was kind of like, obviously he's not going to tell the, he's not going to say who he really is. Right. So he's just going to use this thing just to keep the other guy off balance and then maybe he's just like okay i have to give him something or maybe it's all it was all just play the scene for laughs james you know the other like important thing that happened in this scene here is when and i i felt my stomach go out when when he was like oh the statute of limitations is up and you see max check a paper as if he had that written down somewhere yeah you you know when rockford says the statute of limitations ended yesterday somebody has to have done the math wrong. Yeah. Don't cut it that razor thin, right? Like, give it at least one more week. Just just one more week. We'll get into this. There's a there's a scene about this, and that's where I wanted to bring yeah. this up again. But mm, they're talking about the statue of limitations very specifically through the whole first half of the episode. Like, I feel like in this scene that uh, Steinberg figures that out in the middle of the conversation and doesn't want to let on. And it just makes him more of that nervous giddy that he's got going there, which is good. I think that makes sense given the rest of the episode. Yeah. Um, well, we cut from there to Rockford going, going back to the Baylock house, back to, uh, Charlie's house. These beachside properties. Uh, deep cut. This is apparently the same house that was used as Rocky's house in Sleight of Hand. 
Remember how we talked about, oh. like, what was what up with that house? Yeah. Okay. Same set. Anyway, uh, Rockford knocks on the door, and the door is opened, apparently, by a goon in a Halloween mask. <laughs> yes. Which is like a big ghoulish rubbery mask, which is a great piece of visual comedy. Yeah. Rockford immediately shoves him and starts trying to overpower him as he also has a gun in his hand. But there are three of these goons in Halloween masks. They overpower Rockford. They hustle Sandy out of the house and into a car. And then there's a bit of a shootout back and forth. Rockford manages to shoot the hubcap off of the car (laughs) with the dropped gun. Yeah. But one of them shoots his firebird right in the hood. And that apparently did something to the engine because when he jumps in his car, it will not start. Yeah, nice shootout at a lovely location. You got goons in in masks uh, Mm -hmm. so that we as audience members don't know which set of three goons. (laughs) They are wearing suits, though. So, yeah, it's not like a huge mystery. This gets solved pretty quickly. But Mm -hmm. I do. I did like that. No, no, you don't get to know yet what's going on. (laughs) That's a good call. I didn't think about that. Uh, Then Rockford and Charlie uh, are hanging out with Rocky. Apparently Rocky is now involved. Yeah. Probably he needs a car, right? Yeah. It's funny. Rocky's in this episode. He's in this scene and in another scene. There's never really a reason given for him to be there. Yeah. And he doesn't really do anything. Presumably he knows Charlie well. As sort of emotional support, you might Mm -hmm. call Rocky over because Sandy just got kidnapped, right? Like Charlie, as we'll find out, Charlie's not particularly good with stress. Right. And and Jim probably thinks he's going to have to move around. And so he wants to leave someone. Yeah. With Charlie. So. But anyway, uh, Rockford is saying that they need to call the cops. But Charlie is very insistent that he doesn't want the cops involved. He just wants to make the trade. Someone must know about him and the money. They've been waiting for the statute of limitations to run out just like he has. And now that it has, they grabbed Sandy to yeah. extort the money from him. Rockford keeps pushing him to call the cops, but Charlie is hung up on he made the mistake, so he needs to make it right. He doesn't want to put her in any more danger, and he's able to fix this, because if they want the money, he has the money, Mm -hmm. they can just do it, and he doesn't want it anyway, right? Like, he wants to get rid of the money anyway. He just needs Jim's help to, to make it right. And so Rockford does kind of give in to this appeal, I'll keep helping you. Yeah. Now, especially now that someone's in danger, right? Like, he's not going to just walk away. And Charlie is really adamant that the police don't get involved. Yeah. So there's a thing in this scene. I, at this point, I'm starting to wonder, because I'm more suspicious than Jim, (laughs) if Jim's being played in some way. Yeah, me too. I felt like it was weird how adamant Charlie was about not getting the police involved. Right. I didn't know where I knew Susan Howard from, like... but when I saw her, I was like, oh, I recognize her. This is a, mm-hmm. she's a big star at the time. So using that sort of audience meta knowledge, I thought, hmm, maybe they're faking a kidnapping to yeah. make it look like they got rid of the money and then they'll have, you know, I, I couldn't. Rockford's pinned with the crime and they get the money or something. Yeah, something like Along those lines has happened to Rockford a couple times. I also thought that it was weird how adamant he was about no police. But other than his kind of like character motivation, there isn't really, they don't come back to this. There's not really a reason. Um, I think it's just to reinforce how guilty he feels and how he Mm -hmm. doesn't want to make it more complicated than it has to be. Yeah. And I think this goes along with what I was saying before about him being kind of in a different tone with the rest of it. Yeah. This 
this is a horrible moment for him. His daughter's been kidnapped because of something that he did three years ago. He is responsible. And again, he just wants to get rid of it and go back yeah. to the life that he had. He's trying to just keep it together. Rockford insists on doing the negotiations, which is smart. Yeah. And we have this great sequence where they wait for the phone call. They get it. It is, in fact, our mob boss guy, Lucy, on the other end. But Rockford, because he knows that they don't have any of the power here, mm -hmm. immediately makes it seem like he's the one in charge. Yes. He, he takes command as soon as he's on the phone, which is a really great piece of rockford judo like turning the whole situation to his to be called on his terms instead of lucy's terms. it's a fun status drop thing that's going on here right like lucy calls and he's a mob boss calling uh with a hostage and rockford mm -hmm. makes him feel like he's the one who's not holding any cards right uh, it's a good bluff, and it pays off. He he acts like he doesn't really care about her, but he has an interest in the money. Mm. He makes it sound like they care more about getting the money than he cares about getting Sandy. And Lucy believes him. Mm -hmm. um, I also like this because the back and forth uh, camera-wise, all the shots of Lucy are this like upshot of him. He looks very serious. But then he gets more and more agitated as Rockford keeps hanging up on him yeah. and like waiting for him to call back and stuff. And he starts to look more and more ridiculous over the course of the, yeah, of no, the it's conversation. It's really good. So Rockford negotiates a deal to make one of the most memorable hostage handoffs in oh, yeah. Rockford Files or possibly all of television history. We're going to spend a good amount of time on this next scene. Yeah. The exchange at the ice rink. Mm -hmm. So Rockford picks uh, a skating rink to do the handoff. There's lots of people there. And as he explains to Charlie, you know, no one's going to bring skates. You're going to have to walk out in your straight shoes on the ice, which means no sudden movements. It's just going to keep everyone at the lowest key possible. Mm -hmm. Charlie wants to make the actual exchange. And this is kind of his his character statement. He has to prove it to himself that he can fix his own mistakes. Yeah. Um, as they're waiting for uh, the goons to arrive, there's another note about Rockford's sweaty palms. He starts <laughs> wiping his hands off with a handkerchief. Yeah. Yeah, they've got half a mil just sitting there. Then we get into the actual exchange. What I love about this, uh, there are lots of things that are great about this scene, but the carnival music oh, yeah. in the background the whole time, because that's like the skating. Yeah, it's uh, diegetic, right? Like it's the yeah. skate rig music. Uh, so it's a great counterpoint, right, to the seriousness of the, of the scene. Not only do we get to hear that as we watch all these very serious men do this, all this very serious stuff, we also get a mob accountant with a calculator. This mob accountant is played by Jack Gardner, Mm -hmm. Jim's older brother. So that's uh, a fun bit. He's in many episodes of The Rockford Files in lots of tiny roles. Uh, but more importantly, this calculator. I am fairly confident it is a TI-1250. <laughs> this is a Texas Instrument calculator. Uh, it's got a um, red LED screen, which is nice. Doesn't have many features. It's kind of a cheap calculator. At the time, there are many calculators out there with more features than an accountant would likely have. Do you feel like this might be his travel calculator? Because he's just doing simple arithmetic. I've invested a lot of time in thinking about this calculator. <laughs> to be clear, the, the purpose of the calculator is that he comes over, looks at the money checks to make sure that it's all money and not newspaper or whatever, and then presumably uses the calculator to verify the amount based on the stacks right. of bills that are in the briefcase. If that's all you're using it for, perfectly fine. It's got it's got the features that you want. 
the plus, the minus, the times, the divide. Mm. Uh, it even has like a, a memory function. So that's great. It is new. It came out, I think, the year before. Mm. The thing about it is it only has eight digits, right? So if he's doing math with, there, there are six digits in the amount of money if you don't count the cents places. If you do count the cents places, he, like he's halfway to the limit of his calculator. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying that this calculator cannot be used to calculate in excess of a million dollars? I well, if you include the the pennies and dimes, then yes. Okay. Yeah. But the thing is, is that there are calculators at that time that are out that an accountant would have that would do far fancier calculations than this would, and they would fit in the pocket. All right. So my rule of thumb is, if you're going to buy a calculator, <laughs> you should spend at least a day's wage on this calculator. <laughs> And this one at the time probably cost him about twenty five dollars. I'm just saying I don't think he's a particularly good accountant, or he just works with pretty bad tools, is what I'm saying. I mean, I am impressed that they're like, well, this is enough money that we should we should do some math and make sure we're getting what we're promised. No, and it's actually a handsome looking calculator that, like, (laughs) I like the red display, and also the that era of Texas Instrument feels very Rockfordy. Like they have the same, Mm -hmm. like it fits in with. Rockford's color scheme with his clothing and his car and sure, with sure. like silver and bronze and all that. So, yeah, I think visually it's a, it, was a, it was a good choice, but I would have gone with an HP calculator, honestly. Noted. Well, once the dramatic peak of the seeing the calculator come out has, <laughs> uh, has occurred, he does, in fact, verify the amount of money. They bring out Sandy from the back. And this scene, this is all just visual action. We get the two sides slowly walking out onto the ice. While the skaters, so with the, yeah. the background music, we also have the sound of the skates on yes. the ice, right? And then as the two groups walk out to the center and all the people there who are skating for pleasure realize that something's going on, those sounds gradually disappear until at the moment that they do the exchange, uh, Charlie hands over the money, the goons let her walk over to him. There are no skate sounds and it's just the music and everyone's watching them. They're in a circle of civilians on ice skates. And then as the two groups break from each other and walk back to the other two sides, people start gradually skating again. And then it comes back to like the pre exchange noise level. Oh, it's so good. I love this scene. First of all, it's a classic Rockford setup. Like it's something that Rockford Mm -hmm. would think through. Like he describes in the beginning, uh, you're not going to have sudden movements on ice. It's a public spot. But the other thing I love is just, you know, every single one of those skaters went home and told the story about how they saw a hostage exchange. Like, nobody there doesn't think that that was a hostage exchange. Yeah, it was very clear. Yeah, it was just very, uh, very well done and really eerie watching them kind of one by one slow down to a stop and just mm-hmm. watch what happened. It, it was well played. There are a lot of reasons to watch this episode, but like that scene is worth watching just if you want to see a, a good TV scene. Again, I've seen almost all the Rockford Files before, but I have like a I have a poor memory and you know can't remember. Uh, but Nathan, you, you posted an image of the open briefcase with the calculator <laughs> online because you yeah. knew that I would dig the calculator, and it wasn't that I recognized the calculator; it's that that image set off the rink image in my head. Like, oh, really? when I saw yeah. that, I, I was like, why do I think he's in an ice skating rink? Like, what what's going on <laughs> in my head here? And then I remembered that scene, and I was like, oh, it's that episode. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's not even, oh, 
it's that episode. It's that scene. That's the part that really sticks with me. That it was such a good scene. We could have ended the episode there, and I would have been yeah. happy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, dramatic tension is resolved. Mm-hmm. We have a great scene, but we're not even. We're barely to the halfway yeah. point. There's a lot more to go. We do have a quick coda to that. They're in the car. Apparently, he got the Firebird fixed by now. Sandy's okay, and she's proud of her dad. Everyone is proud of Charlie. Yeah. He did it. He sucked it up. (laughs) He made it right. Well done, Charlie. Uh, Rockford takes them to a motel, uh, presumably to lay low while he gets the rest of the money handled, um, because he has to go talk to Sewell. Well, he has to go tell them, like, not returning that money anymore, (laughs) right? They just gave the money he was going to return to the mob. And as he leaves the motel parking lot, we have another pan over to see the guy, Grady, who we saw receive the telephone call earlier. He's watching the hotel from a car across the street. With both of his sideburns. So whatever happened with those goons, this goon situation over here is still uh, in play. Rockford rolls back up to the pier. Uh, He doesn't even get to his trailer. His trailer is not even in this episode, actually. Yeah. As he gets out of his car, he's immediately arrested by two police officers. They they put him in handcuffs, get him in the car. He's getting arrested on a, a charge of accessory after the fact. And they also find his unregistered firearm in his yeah. uh, in his waistband. There's a great back and forth here. Like when the cop shows, he just has no respect for these cops. Like no, the, not at all. It's kind of like oh, I'm getting arrested again. Now what? Yeah, he's like, put your hands up. He's like, why? Are we going to play patty cake? And then when he's being put in the car, one of the cops compliments the other. <laughs> she was like, oh, I thought it was a little sloppy. There's a lot of good Rockford one-liners in this scene. And he mentions that, you know, Sergeant Becker, he's down at the uh, the station. And they're like, oh, well, then he can sign your arrest papers. <laughs> and sure enough, we go to Rockford and Becker at the police station. All that Becker knows is that this is about the Sewell robbery. Rockford's like, even if I knew anything about that, the statute of limitations ran out. So what do they have on me? Becker's like, I don't know. I'm not in charge. But he's he's a little steamed because he's always dealing with Rockford getting arrested. And he has a line which I think is a wonderful encapsulation of the Becker-Rockford relationship. Once a month, I'm locked up in a room with you with the tape running. It's really starting to put a strain on our friendship. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's good stuff. This transitions to our, our next big reveal where Lieutenant Hall appears. Uh, Lieutenant Hall is not from this district. He's from some other district. He does not appear in any other episodes, uh, which makes sense given how this one ends up. But he is a police lieutenant. He clearly has a bad attitude. He dismisses Becker. And uh, yeah, he's like, we have you cold for accessory to a burglary after the fact. Rockford makes a clear appeal that that makes no sense. Not only can they not tie him to the crime or the person who did it, the statute of limitations on that ran out at midnight. Lieutenant Hall says that whoever's watching your clock needs to yeah. check his math or something I don't, like that. I don't know who you have on your payroll, but your timekeeper, you need a new timekeeper or something along those lines. Uh, he's like, this is a mistake that lots of criminals make. They start the clock when they commit the crime, but the state starts the clock when the report is filed. <laughs> and that didn't happen for another day or whatever. The statute of limitations has not yet run out. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Oh, uh, it's so good. It's a nice reveal because it's like resolving that yeah. question. And Jim, you could see on Jim's face. <laughs> you oh. know, 
so Hall threatens legal harassment, basically. Even if he can slide out of those charges, he's going to find other things to charge him with, including for breathing my air. <laughs> Rockford wants to know why he has such a beef with him. And he says that he's seen his sheet and he keeps sliding out of charges. He keeps on having them dropped. Who does he know? Who does he have a handle on? Right. You know, is it Becker? This, of course, puts Rockford's back up. He fires back that if any of his constitutional rights are trampled, <laughs> he's going to feed Hall his back. <laughs> yes. Hall has him taken out to be to be booked in the in the lockup upstairs or whatever. So, like I said, I like the reveal of the statute of limitations because that's kind of a fun like, oh, okay, so that's yeah. why that was such a big deal. However, <laughs> in other episodes, we've had a lot of really complimentary things to say about Jim Rockford and his knowledge of the law yeah. and always using it to his advantage. While I understand how this is the central conceit of this episode, and that's fine. I was a little bit of like, don't you think Jim would be up on how statutes of limitations work? To form, this would be something that Jim would have to tell Angel. When, yeah. When Angel's in the middle of thinking he's he cut off scot-free. And then Jim would be like, no, Angel, it's when they file the report. You know, like it just feels like the yeah. kind of little nuance, a mistake that a criminal would make that Jim is just clever enough to not. Yeah, that's it doesn't like ruin the episode or anything, no, no. but it did kind of make me go like, really? <laughs> so here's here's my read that might resolve that. Though, okay. Is that yeah. Charlie clearly doesn't know that that's how the law works, which makes sense because Charlie's not really a criminal. Right. And so does Jim trust that Charlie knows what he's talking about enough that he didn't pin him down about exactly what the timeline was? Right. Charlie has been nervous about this. Clearly, he must know exactly when he can give it back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so whatever he's telling me must be true, and he doesn't check it out himself. I, I, I'll go with that. <laughs> so. There's no textual support <laughs> for that. That's my interpretation to make it cohesive yeah. with Jim Rockford attorney at law that's in my head but yeah after they after the other officers take jim out lieutenant hall makes a radio call to as it turns out grady who is waiting across still waiting across from the hotel and says take her down yeah and sure enough he puts on a ski mask goes over to the hotel feeds her a line of bull about being the manager grabs her and takes her back out to the car the ski mask is when all of it suddenly doesn't feel like official cop business right yeah because presumably they're after the thieves or the thief and she could be involved in it another accessory after the fact or anything like that it all feels very on the up and up and then he puts out a ski mask and you're like yeah what the ever living <laughs> yeah because that was like a call from the police station yeah on an official radio to like a code yeah like an agent in the field but then clearly he's not a cop right our next scene is another short but very sweet piece where Beth Davenport, Jim's attorney, has sprung him of the two felony counts and is walking out with him out of the police station. Rockford wants to take her car because he's going <laughs> to need to be mobile. She has this delightful little orange Porsche, which is fantastic, but she needs to get to court. So they both call for a cab. <laughs> so Beth looks him in the eye and says, give me $10. Yes. He makes a joke about that's all she wants for springing him on two felony counts. Yeah. And she's like, no, that's for the cab. I always seem to do the legal work for free. And he seems a little abashed. Yeah. I mean, like, this is great. He's got a very genuine regret for uh, not being up on his legal bills here. I mean, not so much that he'll pay them, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
he does seem ashamed of not paying. Yes. yes. This is also where I realized that he is not going to get, get paid any money during this episode. Yeah, exactly. And there's another thing about this scene. Well, there's a couple things about this scene that I like. One is that I've been waiting for it since the credits. Whatever I see. Like, oh, Beth's in this one. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, but also in the very previous scene, before um, Lieutenant Hall started throwing all the charges at him, you keep slipping out of, you know, charges dropped, you know, like blah, blah, blah. I just see a bunch I of charges, charges dropped. dropped all over your sheet. Yeah. yeah. And he thought it was Becker, but this is why <laughs> it's not Dennis. This it's Beth. Beth is the reason why he's, she's his secret weapon. Um, sure enough, he redlines her yeah. <laughs> convertible on the way out of the parking lot. Bye, Beth. It was nice to see you. See you next episode. Yep. Uh, he goes back to Charlie's. But Charlie has crawled back into the bottle. Oh, yeah. He is drunk. Drunk in despair. Uh, I think after the high of finally making something happen, the low of having his daughter kidnapped again has just uh, sent him spiraling. Rockford has no patience for this. He shoves him into the shower, (laughs) turns it on to sober him up. It's almost harrowing how he's begging Rockford not to do this, right? Like, he just doesn't want to face reality. Yeah, he just wants to wallow in yeah in the fact that he's messed up again, even though it's not really his fault. I mean, in the large scale, it is because none of this would be happening if he hadn't stolen the money. But in terms of assigning agency, yeah. like of all the things that have happened in this episode, this one's actually the least his fault. Right. But he is his tone for this episode is so tragic and so pathetic in the the sense that like he is he is a character without like there's no hope for him right now it, it it's not at odds with it with the rest of the the tone of the show but it just is highlights it by how how more serious and tragic it is underlying it yeah and we go from like a comedic scene with beth yeah to this very dramatic scene where charlie is is at the bottom of his yeah. particular well and he keeps on saying he says uh you know leave me alone get away from me what gives you the right yeah what gives you the right to be involved? And that gets Rockford heated, I think. And it's like, you invited me into this. That's what gives me the right. And now that I'm into this, I want to get Sandy back. Yeah. He's kind of like, this isn't about you. Right. Another character thing with Rockford, right, is like, even when he makes bad choices, he owns them. Right. And he's very big on personal responsibility. Uh, we talked about um, Quickie Nirvana, which is an episode with a character that's not as pathetic i think actually as charlie but has a similar arc of of being kind of neurotic and not claiming responsibility yeah not facing the world as it is right and that that episode is much more about that idea than this one is but we see that in this scene where rockford's like you brought me into this now i have a responsibility and you need to get your together as part of that right yeah we get to uh, uh, Rocky comes back over. Rockford is giving him instructions. And I think this is like, I'm going to need someone to keep an eye on Charlie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, Charlie's in no condition. So he's telling Rocky to, you know, wait for the phone call, agree to whatever they say. I'm going to work on it from the other end. I'm going to get Becker on it. You know, we'll figure this out. They go outside the house and Rockford sees a guy in a car, <laughs> like hanging out the window, reading a newspaper. I think he's talking to Rocky at the moment, right? And he's like, can you believe this guy? Yeah. A newspaper. Like, come mm-hmm. on. 
And so we go again from this very dramatic scene into this uh, another kind of comedic bit. Yeah. Where he goes down, asks nicely what the guy's doing. The guy tries to push him off. And so he he finally just grabs the guy's hand into like a knuckle lock and like pulls him <laughs> up out of the car. And this guy is too much of a sad sack to do anything about it. Turns out that he's a he's a he's a general lowlife by the name of Johnny Living Livingston. And Rockford's like, all right, well, we're going to go down to the station. You're going <laughs> to yeah. tell me why you're hanging around. He says, Rocky, I think the mo- the word about the money's getting out and it's going to be pulling out all kinds of, as he says, lowlifes with dorsal fins. Yes. <laughs> this is as close as we come to actually seeing the title of the episode, right? Like this is a clear indication that the the sharks are now in a feeding frenzy around this half a mil that's out there that people know exists and that's in circulation. People know exists and they know that it's essentially free right like as of the statute limitations yeah. like they know they can end up with it without falling afoul of the law you're gonna steal it from someone who can't what are they gonna do they're not gonna call the right. cops um so we have this this kind of fun sequence where rockford gets gets this guy johnny uh into the convertible uses the gun that he had with him to keep him covered and then just kind of questions him sardonically as they drive down to the station Johnny apparently uh, heard some guys talking. One of them was Mickey, who uh, we know as the denim guy, the nervous denim guy. Yeah. He knew that Mickey was in deep with some loan shark, but he doesn't know who. And then he hung around, you know, some bar, the green duck on 7th. This was mentioned earlier also, like when uh, uh, Lucy's goons are messing with him and he's and right. they make they mention the green duck. I kept on waiting for that to pay off. But I mean, I appreciate the consistency, but it's not like they end up going there or anything. Rockford drops Johnny with Becker. Um, Becker's mad that Rockford didn't bring him in on this case earlier. Now that there's been, a, you know, another kidnapping and everything. Yeah. And as Rockford kind of defends himself, um, he's like, well, you didn't tell me about Hall. And that's when we learned that Hall is from a different division. But lieutenants can sniff around anything they want. So yeah. there's nothing Becker <laughs> can do about it. And our suspicions about Hall are already up because of the ski mask, right? Like, Yeah. So now it's like, okay, something's going on. Mm-hmm. Rockford's basically like, all right, well, I'll tell you what's going on. Let me get you a cup of coffee. So they go to a a coffee machine somewhere, like a gas station or something. Uh, it's one of my favorite jokes of the episodes, actually. <laughs> it's just like, let me buy you a cup of coffee. And I got my notepad out. I'm like, okay, are they going to tell me how much that cup of coffee costs? Oh, it's it's a quarter, mm-hmm. if that. And it's no better than the coffee at the station, because it's like the yeah. same kind of machine. <laughs> so here's where we get our, our plot threads start to come together as Rockford and Dennis talk. So they're talking about this guy, Mickey. Rockford tells him what's been going on so far, basically. Dennis says that uh, the shark that he was into was Lucy Carbone. There's our Lucy connection. But that Mickey's dead. You know, Apparently they disposed of him once they heard about this big score. And then Dennis goes into, it turns out that at the time of the heist, or the heist, at the time of Charlie's (laughs) drunken stealing. Quote, unquote, heist. Mickey was an investigator with the insurance company. So he must have found out about who did it and then decided to sit on it until the statute of limitations was up. In the meantime, he got into money trouble. He got into Hawk Carbone, told him about it to get out from under it. Now he's dead and Carbone has the money. 
So then the question is, so who kidnapped her the second time? Rockford's theory is that Lieutenant Hall must have been an investigator from the police side on that robbery. How would some sad sack insurance guy know all the details? He must have had some connection to the police investigation. And so now they must be working together. Becker will not hear that kind of talk. He refuses to hear that a police officer could be corrupt in this manner. And he storms off. Yeah. Oh, my God. Shut up, Jim. In what I can only assume is an echo of their childhood. Right? (laughs) Like, I can just see them as kids having some sort of argument and him going, shut up, Jim. Well, I I appreciate that we're still, like, moving forward with the story. This is also where we start to get into, like, convenient narrative territory. So we've got... 15 minutes, 10 minutes left. It's like, let's wrap this up. Yeah, I kind of feel like we've seen all the really interesting things. And now we kind of go through the the resolution of, of this situation. We do get a quick scene of Becker looking through some files. And then he leaves, you know, gets into his car. And then Rockford gets in. He's like, so, was, was I right? And it turns out that, <laughs> no, Hall was not on that beat. It was a detective, Northcourt, and someone else who has since died in a shootout. Rockford wants to know if they know each other. Dennis is like, of course they don't know each other. But Rockford knows that Dennis is going to go check it out. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, the two of them go to check out whether they know each other. Uh, Again, I noted some good banter in this. Like, just the way that they talk with each other is very fun. Yeah, so good. So the two of them go to somewhere. They're on the street. They're just watching a a building. And they see Hall and who we know as Grady, who must be Northcourt. I think they mentioned his name, but I missed it. But we see Hall and Grady get out of a building and get into a car together. So clearly they know each other. And then Rockford and Dennis follow them in that car. They go to an isolated shack out in the hills somewhere. As they leave the car, Hall says, just do what he says and it'll all go down clean. Grady is nervous. They go into this shack. Dennis and Rockford arrive. They uh, creep up on it. Rockford asks for Dennis's backup piece, which he says he doesn't have. But Rockford knows that he keeps it (laughs) strapped to his shin. The highlight of this whole ending sequence is just Rockford busting Becker's chops about police stuff. But yeah, they're creeping up on this uh, shack. Uh, Hall and Grady come out of it with Sandy all gagged and and tied up, hustling her to the car. Uh, Dennis yells that they're making a break for it. And then everyone starts shooting at each other. (laughs) Sandy runs away out of the field of fire. (laughs) The two guys get in the car and start speeding away. But Rockford manages to jump out in front of it, directly in front of it and shoot a shot through the windshield, which sends them spinning off the road down into a ditch. And then... Becker is able to to collar them uh, while Rockford goes to find Sandy. While a fine resolution to saving Sandy from being kidnapped felt a little weird of Dennis being like, let's just start shooting. The gun battle here is, I mean, both of the gun battles we had in this episode have Sandy in the backdrop. Yeah. Sandy, people care enough about her to not want her kidnapped. Mm-hmm. But not so much that they would... That they're not going to shoot in her direction? Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a little weirdness here, and I think it's particularly weird because it's Rockford Files, where he is, generally speaking, suspicious of guns and gun play. Right. He, he has usually has much more respect for the damage that can be done just having a gun around. So it is a little a little different than what you would expect from Rockford Files. It's the most generic part of the yeah. episode. It's like, and then there was a shootout, and then the good guys won. Yeah, exactly. And even how they win, 
I do like that the car goes over the edge. It doesn't blow up or anything like that. They're stunned, and the two of them run down on them. And I love that. That choreography mm-hmm. uh, is great because that feels, again, real in a way that a lot of Rockford fights do, where it's like something's happened that's given you your moment. Mm-hmm. Take it and take control of the situation. And once you have control of the situation, then we're good. Yeah. But um, the idea that there was going to just, we're just going to start shooting. Becker's going to yell, they're getting away. <laughs> To alert them. Start shooting, yeah. is a little like, that's not how Becker behaves in these situations in other episodes, right? And it could very easily have just been written as get your hands up or Mm -hmm. freeze or anything. An attempt to make the situation better before it gets worse. And then... Mm -hmm. This was, it feels a little bit like, eh, this is, this is how we're going to end this situation. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's not quite the end of the episode. Uh, yeah. Oh, I, just to tie up a, a plot thing, or as Dennis is arresting Hall and Grady, he says, like, I'll call in the warrant on Carbone. So I guess that implying that, and that will, you know, we'll be able to get them on their ki- kidnapping. Yeah, yeah. We'll roll up all the bad guys together. We'll leave that to the cops. Yeah, so they do have, <laughs> there is a line about that to resolve that question. And then we go to Sandy and Rockford walking on the pier. Uh, it has been two weeks. Her dad has been, he's he's basically depressed still. Yeah. He's, he's feeling real low. He hasn't been behaving like himself. Hasn't been drinking. Uh, but she's afraid that he can't, basically that he can't handle another shock. Yeah. Uh, Rockford is like, well, these things take a while to get over. Uh, give him a couple months, which is very aware of how people actually get through trauma. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of them makes a point about how he made one stupid mistake, but now he's paid for it. And he just needs right. to come to terms with how everything went down and move on. Which is when we cut to a knock on the door of Charlie's place. Where an IRS agent is verifying his identity because he needs to know that even though that money was stolen, he is still required to pay income taxes on it. And if he's taxed at the maximum rate, which he will be, he owes (laughs) (laughs) $250,000. And then the camera cuts to Charlie just kind of stumbling down the beach with a voiceover from the IRS agent going, do you understand? Do you understand? And then he lets out an anguished cry, like screams at the heavens, freeze frame. Yep. End of episode. We are we are not only treated to this this anguish, this tragedy here, but we are denied James Gardner's smile. Mm-hmm. So here's this guy's ending. It's a horrible ending. It's the joke that we keep telling in Rockford Files, which is that nothing you do is going to pay off, right? Like, you, you, yeah. you're just going to lose money. That is what keeps happening to Jim. Jim is out $10.50 for the cab and coffee alone, not to mention the money he owes Beth. Well, and fixing the Firebird. Yeah, right? The Firebird got shot. Oh, man. So, you know, for helping out a friend, Jim's lost that. But this guy, this is it for him. Like, there's, there's no way he's going to ever pay off a quarter of a million dollars in back taxes. Mm. Again, because they chose to end on him rather than any other character, we get this very heavy note. Do you think this was supposed to be humorous? I don't think so. I think that is supposed to be a little gut punchy, right? Like, I think it. Mm-hmm. the scene before it is supposed to say, we feel like, oh, good. Finally, all the danger and trouble is gone. We've come back to our status quo. Everyone is okay. Yeah. And then, no, just 
No, you don't recover from this. It's a really grim ethical statement, I guess. Yeah. He stole the money, which was bad, and he knew that it was bad and he shouldn't have done it. It kind of ruined his life that he did it. So he wanted to return it to make things right. And because he tried to do the right thing, now his life is completely ruined. Right. His attempt at restitution was not enough. Yeah. Right. The the original sin of the burglary was too much for him to ever make up, which is really awful. <laughs> Where does this sit in the timeline of very special Rockford Files episodes? Do we have them by now? You mean like the like social issue kind of episodes? Yeah. Let me reference the 200 a day Rockford Files files and <laughs> uh, see where we're at. So uh, we're talking about episodes where there's some kind of social issue or moral issue kind of right. edge to them. Something that is intended to point out an ill in society and hopefully right. get people to address it, which it, in fact has happened with the Rockford Files. The one that we have not yet reviewed, but that we kind of point out as like the er social issue episode is... Is that So Help Me God? Yeah. Oh, that's that's coming up in three episodes from here. So that this is just before it. So they could be starting to, they're flexing those muscles, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, it's So Help Me God, which is season three, episode seven, which is the one where, where Rockford gets called in for contempt of court. Yeah. Yeah, so this is only a couple episodes before that. It is not written by... Like, there's no really any any production credit, like, connection other than Juanita Bartlett was this uh, story supervisor or whatever. And then, yeah. she, and then she wrote, so help me God. I mean, and then some of them that we have felt that edge with, like Pastoria Prime Pick was in season two. The Oracle War Cashmere Suit has a little bit of that that's earlier in this season. So, I mean, like, I think it's a little bit of that. I think that I don't know the actual stance that they're taking. Like, it's not Mm -hmm. clear whether they're saying that very blanketly crime doesn't pay or if they're saying criminals shouldn't try and make amends because nothing good will come of it. Or if they're saying that, like, this IRS situation would prevent people from, you know, making amends. Oh, that's a question. I mean, I don't think it's presented with as much focus as, like, let us tell you, viewer, about why this happened. Right. Because that is a a, a thing. I think we both looked into it to be like, so is that actually a thing that happens? And it, in fact, is. You are, by the tax code, you are supposed to report income even if it's illegally Mm -hmm. gained. And if you don't, it's tax fraud. As yeah. we, and that's how famously Al Capone, what he was actually indicted for, was doing just that, not reporting illegal income. And and like the amount of money this agent quotes is maybe even smaller than what <laughs> he would actually be charged. I looked up the the tax rate at half a million, and mm-hmm. in the 1973, we were assuming because. It was three years before, and this came out in 76, you know, whatever. And I think it was nearer to 70%. So that alone would have been a massive chunk of that, you know, it'd be 350,000. And then you would have interest on uh, the back payment and uh, fees and, and all these other things. But that said, I will say that, uh, I mean, I don't know about this particular situation. I don't know about illegally gotten gains, but I do know that if you end up with like some money that I, that you owe the IRS that you didn't get to them for whatever reason, you can go to an accountant, talk to them about it, and they will, th- there's a number of ways to make that 
a far less brutal moment than what it was for the, for this guy, right? Like, yeah, you can reduce the amount by bringing up, you know, the circumstances around what happened and, you know, all that. Not that you can talk your way out of it, but most people don't know. They're going to assume the worst case scenario when, if you spend mm. some time working with a professional, I feel like I'm going into a PSA here, but I'm just saying, <laughs> if it turns out that you owe back taxes, talk to an accountant. Uh, and mm-hmm. find out exactly what you owe because you can probably reduce that. Yeah. So maybe we'll talk more about him as a tragic figure in our second half. Yeah. But yeah, this is uh, definitely a, a, an interesting episode. I liked the first half of it more than the second half. Yeah, I can see that. Like I felt like all the stuff set up in the first half was really, really fun and neat. And some of the set pieces are great. And the ice rink scene is yeah a pure joy. <laughs> um, yeah. Chef kiss emoji. Yeah. <laughs> And then, like, it's exciting to see the different groups of goons and the different criminal interests all kind of intersecting. But then they didn't really intersect. Yeah. We see one and then it goes away. Then we see a new one. And the new one was not as interesting to me as the potential that the two of them would intersect. Yeah, because the title is Feeding Frenzy. And certainly that played into what happened, right? But it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't end with a feeding frenzy. It's just you deal with each set of criminals one at a time. It's a, it's piecemeal. Um, I'm not to complain that the title promised us one thing or something else, but like, I wouldn't say the second half. I would say like the second quarter or the second third, like just how they wrapped it all up, maybe. Yeah. The, the resolution was not as interesting as the tension. Yeah. Which isn't out of, like, a lot of Rockford Files, kind of the last scene or the last two scenes kind of wrap everything up. But this one, that wrapping up was of things that were less interesting to me than the first things that were wrapped up. And that had happened ten minutes before. So, yeah, not a complaint. Definitely an interesting episode and worth watching. It is a weird bummer. Yeah, the (laughs) end is just... uh... There's a bit that we I have in my notes that we forgot to talk about. I'm just going to mention it here. Uh, Becker's smile after Lieutenant Hall chases him out of the office. <laughs> it is unsettling. He gets dressed down in front of Rockford by yeah. this guy that <laughs> is his superior, but he doesn't actually have a relationship with. So, yeah. Oh, it's it's weird. It's I love it. I was just like, he just puts on this like, whatever you say. I do like how, how much we get to see a Becker in this one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again to uh, Victor for oh, sending yeah. us the recommendation. I uh, hope you enjoyed our, our thoughts on it. And we will uh, come back with some more thoughts spinning out of this episode about how to use lessons from it for your own narratives uh, after our break. While we have you here, there's three ways you can support us. First, rate and review on iTunes or whatever service you use for podcasts. Second, you can support us directly for as little as $1 an episode at patreon.com slash 200 a day. If you want to help us shape the direction of 200 a day, the Patreon is the best place to go. And finally, both of us have other projects going on pretty much all the time. Epi, what are you excited about right now? I'm excited about swords and sorcery, the type of swords and sorcery you find at worldswithoutmaster.com. And my new project, codename Lincoln Green, Robin Hood role-playing game. You can find all you need to know about that at digathousandholes.com. I'm excited about your stuff as well. Oh, that's so nice. As always, you can check out my catalog of fiction and role-playing games at ndpdesign.com, including the worldwide wrestling role-playing game. If you want to see my newest stuff, check out the playtest page. That's where I have free downloads of all my fun new projects. Thanks yet again for listening. As always, we deeply appreciate your support. And with that, back to the show. 
Welcome back to 200 a Day. Uh, in the beginning, what you just listened to, we talked about uh, Season 3, Episode 4, The Feeding Frenzy. Uh, and now is the time in the show when we talk about the lessons that we've learned from watching this wonderful episode of The Rockford Files and how we may apply those lessons to the fiction that we're creating, either at the table or uh, typing onto blank sheets of paper or drawing or producing hit detective TV shows. Whatever your thing is. Whatever your deal is. Yeah. What would you like to talk about first? I feel like I have a large a large scale thing and a and a character thing. I got kind of a tiny thing that is really kind of let me let me go first. Longtime listener of the show, Sam Anderson, uh also mm. someone I happen to know, runs a Mulvey edition D D game at a local coffee shop uh in his town. And uh it's like an open table, anyone can show up and play which is kind of neat he was telling me about the random table chart this will all tie into this episode by the way i know this sounds really my my breath is baited yes so he's trying to play it as by the book as possible just to you know have fun with all the different uh nuances and the random tables and whatever and i don't recall the exact story about what happened they went into the dungeon uh they had an encounter with i'm going to say orcs they had kind of a blowout fight. Uh, it was a random encounter. He looked at the treasure table for the orcs. If you're not familiar with treasure tables because you're not listening to us because you are a role player, but you're listening to us because you happen to enjoy the Rockford Files, first of all, <laughs> thank you. Second of all, it's a series of you know charts that you would roll your dice and check and to see what kind of goodies the monsters had on them. So he rolls on the treasure table, and the way it's structured is that first we're going to roll for how many copper pieces you get, and it's none. It's no gold. It's no silver. Silver, it's, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing. Mm -hmm. And then randomly rolled five gems worth a thousand gold pieces a piece. And there's six players and they're like, yay, we're rich. And he's like, <laughs> what are you going to do with that? There's no town. That, like you can't mm -hmm. walk into the local blacksmith and say, please give me change for my thousand gold pieces. <laughs> What's great about that is that this reward, th these five gems worth a thousand gold pieces each, I think directly relates to the half a million dollars, right? That uh, Charlie got, right? It's not a, a fungible, I think is the term. Yeah. Like it's not exchangeable for like, um, <laughs> it is, it is in a unit that is not possible to actually cash. Exactly. And so the lesson here is that that can then be the story. Mm -hmm. You know, we all kind of have this like, what if you won the lottery, right? But when you look into actual stories of people who won the lottery, overwhelmingly their lives are worse. They're just ruined by the money that they get because they don't know how to handle it. They get into weird debts with the IRS because they don't pay attention to just like our, our friend Charlie <laughs> Baylock did here. Mm -hmm. But more more importantly, in a story like the Rockford Files here or in a D&D story where if the word gets out that you have this, mm -hmm. like, nobody's thinking we don't know what to do with that money because everyone thinks they have something that could use half a million dollars, right? Right. What What makes it complicated and narratively full is some people can use the money and others can't. Right. So in this situation, in in the episode we just watched, Charlie can't use the money because he knows uh he knows it's sequential. He knows that if he spends it, that someone's gonna notice 
Yeah. And he knows that if he's caught with it, then he's going to be in trouble. So he can't spend it. The criminals who know that he has it could spend it or launder it or whatever, but they know it's still hot until the statute of limitations runs out. Yeah. And then it turns into the situation of now the people who are already engaged with illegal activity are the only people who can use that money. Right. So it's like, I don't know if there's some kind of like dragon economy. <laughs> Uh, where they only use gems because gold melts because they're all too hot. Right. Something like that. It's like now the dragons are coming after you because you have the valuable gems, but you can't spend them at the tavern for your room and board. So I like that idea of not only how do you make this reward something that's not just cash, it's not just a dollar amount, but also how do you make it something that the dangerous, that has a danger attached to it, but the value of it is such they can't just give it back or just leave it. I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, if you're familiar with the film Way of the Gun. I've seen it, but I don't remember I don't remember it. There's a scene in it when our uh, protagonists ask for, I don't remember how much money. It was probably a million or two million dollars in cash in hundred dollar bills or whatever. And the person that, like the criminal that they're they're blackmailing for it or, or whatever, I'm really murdering the story here, but <laughs> is on the phone with them and says, do you know how much that m- amount of money weighs? Mm-hmm. And that becomes an important part for the rest of the film is that it's just these giant heavy bags full of money. It's also a thing that happens in uh, like a big point in uh, Breaking Bad where he's a victim of his own success. He just has all of this illegal <laughs> money and it's more than he can put anywhere or hide anywhere. And it's just like you just physically have too much money. Yeah, there's a great scene in uh, the Peter Falk film, The Brinks Job, which I recently got to see in a theater, which is pretty cool, where so this is a, a, a semi-dramatization of one of the most famous robberies in U.S. history, where this basically a group of dedicated amateurs uh, robbed a Brinks security, the people who do like armored cars yeah. and stuff. They robbed a Brinks facility, like the the vault at wow. a Brinks in, um, in Boston in the... Oof, 60s maybe i'd have to look at the um but anyway uh so this is a thing that happened and then there's a movie that was made about it that's lightly dramatized but roughly what happened and it stars peter falk as like the main the main uh, uh ne'er-do-well but there's a scene where they've done this job they just stole all these duffel bags full of cash and then two guys are trying to count it but one of them's better with numbers than the other one. So one of them keeps losing track <laughs> and they uh, flush some of it down the toilet because either because it was sequential, I think because it was sequential. And yeah. so he knew that they couldn't spend it. Yeah. So like there was some portion of the money that someone had to assess and say, this is safe money for us to just take. Right. And then this is, this is dangerous money that we can't launder. So we're just going to flush it down the toilet because <laughs> it's too dangerous to keep changing your point of view on right. what money means is is an interesting thing to do. Yeah, and I think that that's that's basically it is just this different ways to approach the problem of money, treating having money as being a problem uh, as much as not having money, because it's pretty standard for the Rockford Files <laughs> for him not having money being a problem, but then also. I guess it is pretty standard for someone having hot money or something like that. This episode is good because it's, it's focused on yeah. that as the like central tension of the episode. So this is a nice example of like, how do you, how do you take a big sum of money and make it a complicated thing? It's not so much that you want to sit there and 
find a way to make make a reward the opposite. What you want to do is just take a moment and realistically think through what that cash is going to mean to your character. What are the implications? Yeah, not just what dreams can you fulfill, but like who else probably wants that money? Where are you mm-hmm. going to keep it? How are you going to carry it? Where are you going to find an ice rink to trade that money <laughs> for a hostage? <laughs> think these things through. Um, one thing that I would add to that is that which of those questions gives you a place to put an antagonist? Yeah. Is it the, how are you going to spend it? Is it the, where are you going to store it? Is it the, how are you going to carry it? Any of those questions is a vector to bring in an antagonist, you know, for whatever their reasons are. And what I thought this episode did a good job of was giving us so many different antagonists. Yes. That had a nice like, huh, what is their deal? Question to them. We talked a little bit about how I think it did end up not resolving in as complicated a manner as I would like. Yeah. I feel like those threads could have been intertwined more, but the setup of all these different sets of goons was really exciting and really interesting to see it unfold. Or at least I thought so. Each time you saw a new set of goons, you're like, what is going on? And that's fun too. The vector for how the information got out was a little, yeah, Mickey has to be the one that's the reason why everyone knows about this. But you don't find that out right away. And that's kind of fun too. Well, and it created a nice question of not only a who are these different groups, but also a what side is he on kind of question for the lieutenant character, which, which was an interesting question in the middle of the episode. We see him, we see that he clearly knows something. And then we see that he's, he has this, this ally who is not an officer. And then in my head, I'm kind of going to like, so are these two groups going to have right. a conflict. I, I like that in Rockford Files episodes, there's a couple episodes where that happens, where there are multiple groups of criminals or bad guys or whatever, and their conflict ends up creating the opportunity for Rockford to go- do whatever he needs to do. Sometimes they're urban gardeners, and other times <laughs> they like the horses. <laughs> So, yes, the best example here would be Chicken Little is a Little Chicken, one of our favorite episodes. Please go listen to that if you haven't uh, listened to our episode about it. But, yeah, here, so I was expecting that here. I'm like, when do we get to see these guys run into each other? Oh, like a dirty cop and some mob guys. Like, there's an interesting thing. And it turns out that they were just kind of ships in the night. But it's an interesting model, and I think it's a valuable model for keeping things more complicated than just here are our protagonists, here's our antagonist, now they have conflict. Sometimes their motivations are driving them into each other, and sometimes it's the goal, right? And in this case, it's very much the the goal. Everyone wants this money. One way to have started this story, if you weren't doing just Rockford Files, if you were just saying, I've got this story, I want to tell this Mm -hmm. story, right? One way is to start three years ago with Charlie stealing the money. Yeah. Although, that would just be drunk Charlie... Locked in a... We would not have had as much sympathy for him if yeah. we'd started then. <laughs> but if you like, if you think about it and you're like, I, you know, I want to do a story about uh, a heist that goes wrong, you don't have to start in the middle of the heist or as they're planning the heist. You can do it weeks after the heist. Mm. Yeah, this, this heist goes wrong after three years. It goes so well and so right when he's locked in drunk that he has to ruin it three years later. Yeah, I, I kind of like how it's not really a heist. We talked about yeah, that a little yeah. bit, but like it was just kind of an accident. 
And that brings me to the, the other thing that I thought was interesting to talk about, which is the character, the, the tragic figure of Charlie and how we're kind of get, given a moral lesson or a, or at least an ethical lesson about him. Like, cause he made this mistake. Yeah. He tried to make it right, but then he just is not capable of doing yeah. that. And then it turns out way worse for him specifically. Like there's no fallout for anyone else. It's just him, which is raw. It's really interesting. I, I mean, like I kind of harp on it during the first part, but I love how it it sets itself apart from what else is going on in the episode, right? Because, like you said, nobody else—not nobody else. Mickey, Mickey, I guess is the the yeah. other character that has this problem. Well, he ends up getting killed for it. Yeah. So, and but his problem is he's the same problem, right? He's an addict, just like you know Charlie's an alcoholic, Mickey is a uh, gambling addict. So they both have these very tragic stories in the middle of all this, but everyone else is kind of free from it and can have their. I'm saying everyone else, but obviously every single one of our goons ends up in jail, even the cops. But that's kind of the standard, like, you are punished for your transgressions against society. Like, that doesn't stand out as much. So, like, I was going to say, you not only feel for Charlie, but you feel Charlie's isolation because nobody else is engaged in that tragedy the way he is. You know what I'm saying? Mm Mm-hmm. I can't decide if it makes the episode stronger or weaker as a Rockford Files right. episode that Charlie is such this separated thematic character. Uh, to contrast it again with um, with Quickie Nirvana, mm-hmm. in that the character who who's kind of similar, Sky, she is so much more intertwined with Rockford yeah. uh, thematically. She's more of a foil to Rockford almost. Um, a lot of her qualities are the opposite of Rockford's qualities, and then they and then they have these conversations that highlight those contrasts. Yeah. In this episode, Charlie and Rockford, we know they are friends because mm-hmm. it's presented to us as such, but they don't really other other than the 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 scene where he's drunk and and rockford sobers him out they don't really have those same kinds of conversations that highlight their differences we just get to see rockford being the like i'm gonna help you whether you want it or not yeah guy charlie could still be played in different ways or be a different character without without changing what happens in that episode while in quickie nirvana i think if sky was a different character the plot would have had to have been different to accommodate a different set of character choices absolutely it's it's um hmm. but it does make this episode super interesting and memorable to have that character that's so pathetic yeah in a way that so few rockford files characters are I think it's absolutely a worthwhile experiment. And if you have an, a television show that goes on for six seasons, mm-hmm. you, you're, you have room enough to do that kind of experimentation. But I agree with oh, yeah. you. I think Quickie Nirvana is better crafted for that type of story. So Charlie needs Rockford to shove him along, right? And th- that's almost the right. same thing with what goes on in Quickie Nirvana, except that she kind of needs Rockford not necessarily to shove her along. She uh, she also needs Rockford's empathy yeah, in a way that Charlie doesn't or Charlie kind of rejects it. Because she's all alone and Charlie has a yeah. support system, right? Like his major pillar in his support system keeps getting kidnapped. Which is causing his crisis. Yeah, so we only get Rockford shoving him along for a little bit because we have, I think just because we have more of the rest of the Rockford cast, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, when Dennis comes in, it's great Rockford Dennis stuff, but then there's no need for him to shove Charlie along. Well, because after that, that's the other thing is it's like Charlie's active, you know, through the handoff. Yeah. And he's like, I did it. And everyone's proud of him. Mm -hmm. And that's all he had in him. 
and then once his daughter's kidnapped again, he falls off the wagon, and then he's basically out of the episode. Yeah. You know, then it's all Rockford being like, okay, I can't depend on you. I need to do everything myself. Yeah. The stakes are too high to make sure I get you involved. So he, like, has his moment of catharsis, and then it's ripped away from him. <laughs> and he's even worse than it was before. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, so that's, that is interesting. Yeah, like I said, I think it's a worthwhile experiment, but definitely... Mm -hmm. Uh, Quickie Nirvana is a better example of if you want the episode to be about that. I think this episode isn't as cohesive about that being the point. Right. As Quickie Nirvana is about that being part of the meta story, if you will, mm -hmm. of that episode. Part of the intention was to highlight that kind of person. Yeah. This one is more like, here's a character that is very tragic. Here's Here's a situation that is going to unfold on top of Rockford. So I guess maybe a productive question for us is like, is, is that something that you can treat in your narratives or like how would you want to treat that kind of character? Right. Is this a more appropriate character to be the focus of the narrative? Because Rockford's the protagonist in this one, like for sure. Would this be a stronger piece if it wasn't a Rockford Files episode, if it was like a piece about Charlie specifically? There's a thing that comes up in like writer's workshops and things like that, where if you're writing a story and you, you're, you've got a story to tell, and the story you, you want to tell is that you've got Jim Rockford, who is has a friend who's in trouble because his friend stole money in the past and now a bunch of people are all swarming around this money because it's about to be free money. <clears throat> so you're writing that story and then in the process of writing that story, you make a character uh, that stands out a bit in the case of Charlie here, like this this sort of pathetic, I keep using the term pathetic and I don't necessarily want to, this tragic figure that is Charlie. Mm -hmm. And then in, <laughs> you could bring it to a workshop and people read it and they're like, Charlie's such a good character, you should make it all about him. But that's not the story you were trying to tell right yeah yeah so the the question then becomes uh and this is this is a deeply personal question that, and deals with all the different circumstances around why you are creating this fiction in the first place do you abandon the thing you were doing before and rearrange it around this character or dial the character back <laughs> So that people don't think of it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It seems against what you would want to do. You'd want all the characters to be this good. And we often praise the Rockford Files for having these. We were just talking about um, Eddie Firestone in, in a previous episode being a character that we vividly remember yeah. because of how well that character was written. And I don't know. I think you, you present the problem. I don't know if it's even a problem, but I think the the rough edge that we're noticing here yeah. is that we have two compelling characters that are don't thematically work in the same way in the same story. Mm -hmm. At least for me. I still hesitate to say that it is bad. Like I don't I don't think this was a bad episode, but it does mean that my analysis of the episode revolves around this character and not the narrative necessarily. Um yeah, I think looking at it that way, my answer would be to find a way to play those those two different themes against each other a little more strongly, which again is what happened in Quickie Nirvana. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be the central point of the episode, but you want the the audience to feel like it's intentional and that you crafted it. And that's the thing that like I feel like uh, it's a little difficult to talk about, but just conveying the I meant to do that. In, yeah. in in what you're doing uh when you're when you're writing something or creating something like this i mean that's a lot of the craft that we talk about is when and it's just something you have to learn by doing mm -hmm. of doing things on purpose instead of by accident yeah i'm not gonna mention any names but i recently uh watched a rather 
popular detective uh, series that I enjoyed, but it just seemed accidental. As as I watched it, I was like, clearly somebody knew what they were doing, but mm. I think that it wasn't the people in charge. It turned out very interesting without the, a steady hand on the sure. steering wheel. So I'm not saying that you absolutely need to let people know that you know what you're doing and that you're crafting it well, uh, because obviously you can create good things without doing that. But <laughs> if you're going to have somebody have a podcast about it, <laughs> you're going <laughs> to... Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird, it's kind of a weird thing to talk about because it's like, I don't know, it's not really something you can give advice about. It's kind of a trial and error thing, at least for yeah. me and my own creative work. There's stuff that happened. I'm like, oh, I didn't mean for that to happen, but I will capitalize on the fact that it happened going forward yeah. and learn to do that on, on purpose. Yeah. And it is, it is just the last third or quarter, you know, the last act. Mm -hmm. that yeah, the last act and then the last scene. Yeah. Which really punch it into this kind of question mark territory for me. Because we don't have Charlie between the shower and the IRS agent. I don't utter that sentence at any other point in my life, but we don't have Charlie <laughs> between the shower and the IRS agent. And that may be fundamentally the only problem we have here. Sure. Yeah. If we just had one more bit of Charlie in there, um, that may have just been the the glue to stick the the ending together with the beginning part. It feels a little bit like they had to rush, like rush it to production. Yeah. You know, had the first two thirds of it kind of nailed, and then like, well, we're shooting tomorrow, so. I mean, I've not actually done a television show, but I've I've done that with my own fiction, and and yeah, it's just in like, oh god, I, we're just getting here. I feel like we're being kind of negative about it, which again feels weird because it's a good episode and I enjoyed watching it. It does just present this big question that I think is a yeah, no. hard to solve question in a way that other episodes we've seen haven't had this kind of issue. We're we're being critical, but I think it's in in a good way. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> we don't need to help make Rockford Files anybody. We're using the Rockford Files to help make us better. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like it comes back to the thing that I said about it. Just it's a worthy experiment. Like I think that yes, it was yeah. just a really neat thing to do. Absolutely. And I like the character. There's a just one step missing, or just it's a little bit of a stumble, and that's it. But you gotta you gotta try new things. Yes. So and that is one thing we really do love about the show is that so many of the episodes try something. Yeah. Like it is formulaic, but it's also within the formula. There's lots of interesting digressions. So and and you end up with carnival music playing while a bunch of ice skaters. <laughs> this might have the greatest single scene in the Rocky yeah. Files. <laughs> In, in the dead center of it. Like, that's oh. right at the halfway mark, basically. Yeah. Let's end on a high note yeah. and just say again how everything about that scene, from how it's framed, how it works in the narrative, how everyone in it behaves. Yes. How it's shot, how the music works. The fact that it's over, it has a commercial break in the middle. Yeah. But leading up to the commercial break, it's just Jim and Charlie. Yeah. And they're talking about the money and stuff and Jim's sweaty hands. And then when we come back from the commercial break is when the goons show up. So even in the same continuous narrative scene, it's like broken up really smartly. So there's kind of a first half and a second half. It's great. It yeah. is a wonderful scene oh, of the Rockford Files. So good. So, so beautiful. Enjoy that when you watch it and steal that idea for your own stuff because you're not going to top it. Yeah. <laughs> Just steal it. Good stuff. So that's my that's my high note to end on. Do you have anything else to add to our discussion of uh, feeding frenzy? I've got nothing else to add. I think uh, 
I think we may have learned our lessons here. I feel like I've learned something. <laughs> so yeah, th- thanks again to our patron for suggesting it. Uh, you can check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to join the cohort of our, our wonderful supporters over there. Just a dollar an episode. And uh, speaking of dollars per something, I think we have earned our $200 for today. So uh, we will see you next time when we talk about another episode of The Rockford Files. <laughs>